today we're going to take another step in this series, Paul, Women, and Wives, and we're going to look at arguments for and arguments against women in ministry. Last week, I introduced the central argument, and we listened to a couple of the key players in this debate. On the complementarian or traditionalist side, we uh, analyzed a video by John MacArthur, and on the egalitarian side, we listened to uh, Mr. N.T. Wright. So uh, those were the two names, but the but the players are the egalitarians and the complementarians. The central argument is, are women to serve in, um, in ministry roles within the church, or at least in an official capacity? That's the argument that goes on. Uh, this is a highly... Uh, controversial issue. Many of you didn't know that the role of women was a point of contention within God's church. Um, some of us who did know it didn't know that it was as deep a divide as it actually is. The divide is so deep that some will say, and all I'm doing here, guys, is giving you a brief recap of last week. If you want to know more about it, you should really listen to the message. There was a lot that was uh, shared there. But uh, the, this contention, this divide goes so deep that some leaders would go far as to say that you're not a real Christian. Or, as John MacArthur said, you're, quote, committing the most obvious rebellion against God's word if you believe that women can preach or um, minister in some official capacity. Meanwhile, on the other side, uh, they would say that if you believe in the resurrection's importance, well, of course we believe in the resurrection's importance, right? Then you must necessarily allow women to preach because, well, it was women who were first at the tomb and first to declare that Jesus was alive. What is the problem? Neither of these are arguments, or at least they're not good arguments. This is just, uh, this is just the way people... Um, kind of emote their, their positions, right? It doesn't mean that both sides don't have good arguments. There are sound arguments, and we, through this series, are going to dig deeply into those arguments, especially when we get into 1 Timothy 2 or, or into 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to dig deep into these arguments, and they get, they get kind of heady, okay? So I hope you'll stick with me. Um, it just means, all I'm pointing out is that these arguments are not actual arguments. They're appeals to fear on one side. Guess what? If you think women should be in ministry, you're a cultural Marxist. <laughs> we heard that last week, right? That's just an appeal to fear. What are we doing with this? On the other side, it's an appeal to an irrelevant authority. The, rev the, the resurrection does not give a prescription of anything. It simply tells us Jesus is alive, he is king, he wins. Amen? Okay, so that's what is actually happening. The players, as we discussed last week, are complementarians and egalitarians. Up on the screen, I'm going to tell you briefly what they believe. Complementarians believe that all people are created equal in value, but are designed specifically for different roles within the church and society. And we all know that there's a lot of truth in that statement, okay? The next one is the egalitarians. They believe that all people are created equal in both value and roles within the church and society. And there's a lot of truth in that. And so we understand why people hold this. Now, value and function was another piece that I hammered on last week. And I want to, I want to have your undivided attention in this statement. 
because this is at the crux of this argument. This is also at the crux of people's identity in their life. Uh, An essential point to remember is that value is not the issue that's being debated in this uh, in this problem in the church. Value is not, at least not in modern times. It was before, and we'll get into that in, uh, in future weeks. But it is not value. The debate today is solely about the function of women in the church. People often see their function uh, as their value. I shared this last week. They see their function as their value, not understanding that value must come first. Value must come first. First, function then becomes a derivative of everything else. If you get the cart before the horse here, this is what I want you to listen to. If you get the cart before the horse here, you will always be working to find your place or position in life. You'll be striving. You'll think people don't love you. You'll think God doesn't love you. It's true for your salvation. It's true for your earthly relationships. If you do not understand that you have value first, and function second, you are going to try to perform to be loved. How many of you know that's true? How many of you have ever struggled with that? How many of you are lying? (laughs) Yes, we struggle with this, but we're not taught this. In the story of the prodigal son, it's fascinating that the older son actually believed, the older brother actually believed that his function, the things that he did were, were what should earn him favor in his father's eyes. Didn't I do this and that? Didn't I do everything? Haven't I always done what you've said? And his dad's like, and I've always loved you. I didn't love you because of that. I loved you because you're my son. And if we can get a hold of that church, it will truly set people free. The last piece in our recap is preserving unity. The spirit that should govern this debate, that does not govern this debate, the spirit that should govern this debate, is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, or highlighting verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We've got to become a people who are a lot more peaceful when it comes to this particular subject. So today, we're going to walk through uh, some of the arguments made for and against women in ministry. And as we do this, I get to touch on one of my favorite subjects, debate. I get to just talk about arguing because I like arguing, but I also like talking about it, right? So as I promised, we're going to address what makes for a good argument or a sound argument versus what makes for a bad or an unsound argument, and we're going to do that as we go through everything. So let's begin by defining the term ministry or minister. One popular website, gotquestions.org, does a fairly good job of capturing the secular and the sacred concepts of this. Okay, so check this out. Again, this is gotquestions.org. They're going to nail the sacred immediately. And then after that, there's going to be like a glimpse of hope every once in a while, but they kind of run off the rails, right? A minister is literally a servant. Can you say that? A minister is literally a servant. Okay, enough. 
That's the sacred definition. That's the biblical understanding. A minister is a servant. If, if you hear nothing else that I say today, a minister is a servant. A minister is a servant. So they go on to the secular side of it, and the secular side has invaded the church. But the word has taken on a broader meaning in, its, in religious circles. Today, a Christian minister is seen as someone authorized to conduct religious services. Doesn't that sound fun? That's my joke about being a professional Christian. It's a joke, right? I'm a servant like everybody else is supposed to be a servant. So authorized to conduct religious services, a person who leads worship services, administrates a church, or conducts weddings and funerals is considered a Christian minister. Synonyms of ministers are clergy and pastor. That's the definition from the secular side of life. And it has invaded the church. But we've got to be careful not to conflate the two. Because as soon as we do this, as soon as we accept that bottom half as the definition supposedly that the Bible gives, we're going to screw everything up. We're going to see this elite class of people. I'm not talking about hierarchy. I'm not talking about the fact that there are elders who are supposed to lead, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm just simply talking about the fact that minister is not synonymous with every word that people say it's synonymous with, okay? It means servant. So God Questions goes on and says this. In the Bible, the role of minister is not linked to licensing or being an official wielding some kind of authority. There's the glimmer of hope. That's awesome. That's true. It's not linked to licensing, okay? In Romans 15, 16, Paul says that he was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. God gave Paul, me, the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might come and offer acceptable, uh, become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit. So this is what we actually see as, um, as a Christian minister, right? Somebody who is uh, leading people to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So um, it's not, it's, it's fascinating because this, uh, they go on to say something like, um, Others might become sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is a Christian minister. Broadly speaking, they say, uh, being a servant of Christ makes one a Christian minister. It's not even broadly speaking. It's biblically speaking to say that being a servant of Christ makes one a Christian minister. But here's where the discussion goes off the rails. Here's where gotquestions.org actually seems to not be good at answering questions, which is quite ironic, right? But you are about... Uh, Here's what they say. Individual churches can define more specific roles for that church's ministers or pastors. Remember what they just said. They just said that being a minister is not linked to licensing or being an official wielding some kind of authority. And right after that, they say individual churches can define more specific roles for that church's ministers and pastors. Really? That sure sounds like a license. It's a local license, but it's still a license. And apparently churches are the ones who get to, to determine this. This is subjective nonsense, church. If it's this way, then we can't actually tell who should be a minister in the church. Because church A says it this way. Church B says it that way. Church C says it that way. Is this healthy? Is this helpful? 
No, it's not helpful. We're confused about everything, right? And so the truth is that this debate often boils down to a bunch of subjective gobbledygook. I love that word, right? It's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. In this week's pastor's podcast, I was talking to Barney and I shared that calling comes from God. Hear me. Calling comes from God and is then observed by men. How many of you know that? Calling comes from God, and then it is observed by men. Calling is not a thing given by men, the church, select churches, giving a license from a seminary or something like this. Calling is not a thing given by men, which God must observe. We can't make God observe anything. It don't matter how hard you try, right? He, he doesn't get his arm twisted very easily, right? So trust me when I say this is a critical issue in this debate. I don't care who you are. I don't even care what gender you are. Calling is not something you choose. What do I mean by that? I mean that you don't just wake up someday and say, when, you, when your teacher asks you, Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? You go, I want to be a pastor, so what? I also wanted to be an astronaut and other things. It didn't pan out that way, right? What do you want to be? That's irrelevant. The, the real question is, what has God chosen for your life? What are the giftings seen in your life? Does it align with the Bible? And is it evidenced by men and women inside of the church? Please hear me with this. You do not choose what you do in life as far as calling. God chooses what is happening. God gives certain gifts. Other people affirm that, and it aligns with what the text of Scripture says. Otherwise, again, man or woman, doesn't matter. You're making stuff up. There are many people I've encountered in my life that say, I just feel called to be a pastor. Good. Now let's test you. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says test them. Why? Because the Bible is not a subjective book. It's an objective book. There's truth there. Okay? And so what you need to do is you need to maybe feel a calling, maybe experience something, but it has to then align with gifting, it has to align with the scripture, and it has to be evidenced by people on the outside. This is why the American church, specifically, has 85 billion denominations. Because every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Sally decides they are going to plant a church, they're going to go out and they're going to do something, and there's no evidence from anybody in their life. And guess what happens, thankfully, to most of those churches? I know this is going to sound really harsh. Thankfully, they shut the heck down, <laughs> right? You don't need people beating you that have no calling. What you need is God's called ministers shaping you and helping you and guiding you. That's what the scripture talks about. So God questions, goes on further and says, although scripture indicates that the spiritual authority of a local body should be a man, 1 Timothy 2.12 by the way, that is exactly the question we're trying to settle in this series. Do you guys know 1 Timothy 
You should hear it because this is what makes it really challenging. 1 Timothy 2.12 says this. Well, I'll start at 11. It says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. There it is. Bible says it. We'll see you guys next week. I wish it was that easy. I really do. Dave McCarthy thinks it's that easy. He came up to me last week and he said, based on what you said last week, I'm getting the sense we're not kicking all the women out of the church. I said, no, we're not kicking all the women out of the church. He goes, and we don't even get a vote on this? Okay. I said, no, Dave, we don't get a vote. Conveniently for Dave, Anna wasn't here last week, so he can spout off And Anna doesn't do anything, right? So if you'd like us to hurt him, Anna, just let us know. Okay, that's important, right? So Got Questions says, Scripture indicates that the spiritual authority of a local body should be a man. Leaves a lot of interpretation. Other ministering roles are available to both men and women. Now listen to what happens, because I'm going to point out the problems. This is what happens in the debate, and this is where you see sound arguments and really bad ones. In most non-Catholic churches, what does that mean? Protestant. Okay, moving on, right? In most non-Catholic churches, a senior minister is responsible for the majority of preaching and for overseeing church government. In the New Testament, such men are referred to as overseers, elders, and shepherds. Acts 20, 28, Titus 1, 7, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. These terms are referencing ministers, and look at this, in an official capacity. Did you know there's official servants in the Bible? And then non-official servants. I'm still at a loss for where the heck that is. But anyway, so official capacity, those having been called by God to lead a church. Notice what just happened. In most non-Catholic churches, that's a Protestant church, a senior minister preaches in governments. Where, uh, governs. where is that in the Bible? Where is senior minister? Where is official minister? I, I'm, I'm not sure I can find that. And I can assure you, the reason I can't find it is because it's not there. Remember what came next. In the New Testament, these men are elders, overseers, and shepherds. This is what happens when you conflate modern ideas with the Bible and you make your case. It's post hoc rationalization. You have rationalized something after the fact. You've made it fit the narrative. And so you are the one inserting the... the, the uh, You're inserting the the rules by which the game is played. This is not a good way to do it, right? Therefore, in their view, ministers in an official capacity, again, not in the Bible, are elders, overseers, and shepherds, and the responsibility, again, not in the Bible, is the the majority of preaching and teaching uh, and governing. Well, let me ask you another question. What does the majority of preaching and teaching mean? Does it mean you're allowed to have a minority of preaching and teaching and then that can be a woman? This is why this issue becomes confusing and people are lost as to what is actually said. No, nothing we've talked about here is biblical ideas. We're just shooting it off, right? So it doesn't, doesn't actually help anything. So where does minister or ministry in official capacity come from? Maybe the idea that there is leadership in the church. 
but it's a strange concept, and it would have to be explained or understood better. We're not going to find it directly in Scripture, but maybe we can search and find the principles that uh, help people derive this idea. What we will find, though, for sure in the Bible is people ministering or people serving, won't we? We will find this over and over. You want to know one of the best examples of a minister in the Bible? The Samaritan who uh, helps the man who's on the side of the road bleeding and dying. You know what he did? He stopped and he ministered to the man's needs, right? He served him. He put him up in the inn. He paid for his treatment. He cared for him in every way. That's amazing. And the officials that were supposed to do it, what they do to the guy dying on the side of the road? They skipped out. You see, one thing that we're not supposed to do, no matter where we land on this issue, is we're not in positions to lord it over one another. How many of you know that? We're not in a position to lord it over one another. We're in a position to come under one another. All y'all submit to all y'all, right? It's as country as Claremont County gets. Okay, so... What we're going to see here is that all people are called to minister, all people are called to serve in in a certain capacity. What church circles debate, though, is whether or not elders and deacons are supposed to be men or women. And that will be debated as well in this series, no question. I am not suggesting that this is not a topic of discussion, right? I'm not suggesting that you go, ha, all are ministers, enough said, we move on. No, 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 no. There's a lot to nuance in this. But please, we're conflating a bunch of terms, minister, pastor, teacher, elder, whatever it is. We're we're just putting all these things together and pretending like they all mean the same thing. They do not. They do not. So if a minister, if a minister is simply a servant, what does the Bible say about women's involvement in various forms of ministry? What's it say? It says they're involved. (laughs) It says they serve just like everybody else, and I'll prove that as we go. According to Paul, we're going to see that any person whose desire is to serve God by proclaiming the gospel so that others might be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that is, in fact, a Christian minister. So let's talk about prophets and then priests. Sorry about the volume there. Prophets and priests. A prophet or a prophetess is a ministry position frequently described in the Bible, and it promotes women's direct involvement. Can I get an amen? It promotes women's direct involvement. As we saw in the definition of minister above, most people think first of pastors when when they think of hearing the word of God. But in the Old Testament, do you know what the most common ministry was that declared the word of the Lord? It was the prophet. And women were prophets, very clearly. Craig Keener points out in the, uh, in the book, Two Views on Women in Ministry, he points out that the Old Testament prophetesses included, and this is a quote from him, Miriam, Exodus 15, 20, Deborah, Judges 4, 4, Huldah, 2 Kings 22, 14, and 2 Chronicles 34, 22, and apparently even Isaiah's wife in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. And there's a little bit of debate on what Isaiah is saying there, but 
Again, the majority of scholars believe this is actually his wife that he's referring to. In the New Testament, they included Anna, Luke chapter 2, verse 36, and Philip's four virgin daughters in Acts 21.9. What's the significance of Acts 21.9? That prophetesses, young daughters of Philip, were occurring well after the church had been established. Okay? well after the church had been established, okay? Paul addresses prophetesses directly in the early church. This is in the book of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, actually, as he affirms both uh, women both praying and prophesying in the gathered assembly, in the church setting. So um, 1 Corinthians 14 says, I, um, I, uh, women must remain silent. How many of you know that is said there in 1 Corinthians 14? Well, it's impossible for that to mean absolute silence if two cha- three chapters before he says they can prophesy and pray, right? And we'll get into that argument deeper. But it's impossible for him to mean absolute silence. Guess what? Words don't always mean what we think words mean. Authors mean things by the words they use, okay? So we'll analyze that. But Paul tells them that they're allowed to do this. And then he gives this obscure command. He says, you can do this as long as you keep your heads covered which is weird, okay? And we're going to talk deeply about that during the series as well. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, we also read Peter's inspired interpretation of a prophecy from the Old Testament. And this is cool, guys. If you're an Old Testament, New Testament, like connection person, you're going to love this. Uh, In Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29, that when God pours out his spirit, that is the day of Pentecost and forward, it will enable another generation, both men and women, sons and daughters, to what? Prophesy, right? And this, by the way, is a companion to what we see taking place in Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he talks about there is neither male nor female, nor nor Jew, nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. All of a sudden, there's this flat playing field that God in a new creation has welcomed everyone in. Okay? And that's a pretty awesome reality. And so this is all connected in this. And so the fall seems to be corrected. There was, this, there was the fall of man in Genesis. And then the curse. And now the new creation seems to be fixing all of this. Mankind is being taken back to his and her intended state. So here's what Luke says in Acts chapter 2. Uh, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay, remember this. This is is so cool. This is very cool. Um... I was talking this week about, uh, about this particular passage, and we're trying to, trying to work through the implications of the passage. And she, she, as we were looking through it, she was like, it's amazing when this passage is declared. And you need to connect it, when this passage is declared. Peter is explaining to onlookers on a sermon, in a sermon, on the day of Pentecost, he's explaining to them what they are observing, isn't he? He says, here's what you're seeing. So what were they actually seeing? This is what Steph pointed out. It was really powerful. They were seeing men and women prophesying. 
something is happening because Peter uses Joel as the justification for what they're observing. And he says, you guys got to calm down. This is exactly what God said would happen. Amen? And so when it happened, guess what takes place? The gospel is declared and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. This is fascinating because what that implies is that men and women were declaring the gospel in a corporate setting and people were coming to faith because of it. And Peter wanted to explain, hey guys, that's what you're seeing. That's what's actually happening. I think that that is just, uh, that is just phenomenal. It's powerful. At this point, some are going to uh, comment on this and they're going to say, yeah, Nathan, that's fine, but the majority of prophetic voices were men. Okay, brief lesson on arguments. That isn't an argument. It doesn't prove anything. So what? You're not appealing to anything truthful there. Just be, Even if there was one woman as a prophet, you lose the argument. Amen? So it really doesn't matter that the majority were men. And why was it? Context will teach us the lesson. Why was it? It's a male-driven society. Are we surprised at that? We shouldn't be surprised at that, okay? So this is exactly what happens. This doesn't prove anything. Although it is true, right, um, the only office in the Old Testament that was ever exclusively given to men was what? The office of the priesthood. And guess what? I love this. There's always a giant but. And I'm going to share with you the giant but, okay? So here's the but. Uh, it's, a, it's tangential, but it's amazing regarding priests. The priestly office does provide us with some important lessons for ministry, but not necessarily the conclusion that ministers must be male. As Protestants, what do we apply? Uh, how do we apply the priestly analogy in the New Testament? Do we not say we're a royal priesthood? Who does that cover? Well, interestingly enough, that covers everybody now. This is revolutionary, make no mistake. This is absolutely revolutionary. 1 Peter 2, 5 records it. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 5, 10, and Revelation 20, verse 6. But listen to what 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 say. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a... Holy priesthood. Is that what it says? A priesthood. Do you know that that term right there in the Greek is in the neuter form? If it was male, it would be male, masculine. If it was female, it would be feminine. It is both, so it is in the neuter form. The priesthood is all believers, men and women, right? And what are they supposed to do, church? Well, Peter answers the question, doesn't he? He says, two... That's a hint what you get to do, right? <laughs> to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, that's clear as mud. So what are the spiritual sacrifices of the New Testament? Romans 12.1. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, pure and holy to God, because you are what? Or because this is what? It is your spiritual act of worship. So if we're going to think that priesthood in the New Testament is only men, then women don't have to submit themselves to God. That's confusing, right? So it is complete, it is men and women, and they have a responsibility to do something, to offer up sacrifices. In the Old Testament, this was something men alone did. 
But are we or are we not the royal priesthood? Does that or does that not include women? It does. So what are we supposed to do? See that everybody is doing this. Then he goes on in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Again, in the neuter form. And a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. For what purpose? Well, here we go again. So that this is your job. Okay, this is my job. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know what that job is? Matthew 28. It is go and preach the gospel. Do you see it? It's amazing. The priesthood made sacrifices and declared the oracle or the truth of God. Did they not? And the new priesthood does the exact same thing. And it's men and women, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and what do we do? We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely everyone's responsibility. So what did we say a Christian minister was? Any person who desires to serve God by proclaiming the gospel so that others might be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that is a Christian minister. So are women supposed to be Christian ministers? The answer is yes, church. The answer is yes. yes. Look, at, look back to Romans 15, 16. This was in the definition from gotquestions.org. But Romans 15, 16, Paul says the same thing as Peter, doesn't he? To be a minister, God has called me to be a minister. What's that word mean, church? Servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving or ministering as a what? Priest. Because we're royal priesthood. This is really important for Paul to say this because he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a descendant of Benjamin. He's not in the priesthood. But now he is. Now he is because all y'all are. You know what that means? That means I'm retiring tomorrow. And you guys, all y'all doing it, okay? So anyway, so he says, I was a priest of the gospel of God. To, to preach the gospel so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's the job. All of us. Every single one of you. You guys ready for training? Everybody ready? Good. It starts in a half an hour. Okay. So, notice this. Paul says that he was a minister as a priest. Peter says... We are royal priesthood neuter. What is the ministry of the priest as per Paul? Preaching the gospel. What is the ministry as per Peter? It's making your body a living sacrifice as well as ministering the gospel. The question is, can women do this? And I want you to say a big old yes. You are not saying it loud enough. A big old Wait a second. You're still not saying it loud enough. I want the church down the street to hear it, okay? A big old that's what I'm talking about. And listen, I'm not throwing around my opinion here. Look at what it says and wrestle with this. What happens when people force into the conversation strange agendas like a minister in an official capacity? They have something to prove. They have something that they, an agenda that they want to move towards. That's not what we're seeing in the text of Scripture. Craig Keener points this out, and I love this. It's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here. We're going to jump to Judges here in just a second. But Craig Keener points this out. He says, prophets delivered God's message. Amen? Okay. 
The contention is women can't be ministers. Women shouldn't proclaim the word of God. It's, that's a man's job. But think about the logic of what that would mean. Here's what Craig Keener points out. He says, so to voice the objection that women are allowed to deliver God's message in prophecy, but not by teaching the scripture, <laughs> is essentially to claim that they can minister as long as they don't use the Bible, as long as they don't use scripture. You know how much hot water you get in there? That's just goofy. Instead, what it is, is we should take the Bible for all that it says. You should offer your body as a living sacrifice, all y'all. You should all be proclaiming the gospel, all y'all. Because all of us are called to be servants, all y'all. We need to do this all the time. And we need to be using the scripture and we need to be listening to the Lord. So the second argument for women in ministry would be, uh, would be a judge in the scripture. In the entire era of the judges, only one woman was a judge. And the book of Judges makes it clear that she was a woman. The Hebrew is actually emphatic in this. Look at what uh, Judges 4.4 says. It says, a woman, prophetess, the wife of Lipidot. Okay? <laughs> it's interesting. It doesn't say a prophetess. It stresses it. A woman, prophetess. Why? It seems it's an important idea. It seems it's something that... Uh, that we need to understand. Craig Keener points out again that while its rareness made it remarkable, the text offers no note of condemnation or correction. That's impressive. It doesn't say she is a prophetess and a judge, but knock it off. <laughs> right? It's not. It's something God gave. However, here is something worthy of note for all the egalitarians. Deborah does not grasp power, but shares it willingly with a man named Barak, okay? She's not power hungry. She even points out uh, that her role is in fact rare. Look at what happens in Judges chapter four, verses six through 10. The first thing that I want you to know before we read it is that the word for judge, Shaphat, means uh, judge, but it also means to govern, to govern. So it's not like she was just sitting on a bench going, guilty. That would be awesome, right? But instead, also some, in some way governing. And she even shares Barak's military leadership. Listen to what happens here. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out... To you, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon. I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, I can't do it. Anyway, he said, if you will go with me, help me. If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This sounds like most of my daughters every day, right? If you'll go outside with me, I'll go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, and this is the kind of high stakes issue here, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. She even knows that this is rare. Its rarity doesn't change the fact that God ordained it, right? 
So God did this. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Some object that God appoints women only when men are not getting the job done. (laughs) That's an argument for many more women in ministry today, okay? So, but that's the objection, right? Men aren't getting the job done. In fact, this very text is what they cite. But even if one were to grant this premise, it hardly proves an argument against women in ministry today. It doesn't doesn't prove anything, right? Again, back to what I keep stressing. There are arguments, and then there are non-arguments. And this is a non-argument. While refuting objections that point to women who served as prophetesses uh, and teachers and what he called assistants to the apostles, which we'll get into next week, that apostles, there were women apostles as well. John Calvin says this, and anybody who's been around me long enough knows that I don't have much love for Johnny Boy here. So John Calvin invokes his theological principle that God's extraordinary acts do not annul the ordinary rules by which he wishes us to be bound. God's extraordinary acts do not annul the ordinary rules by which he wishes us to be bound. And then he goes on and says this, only God can interrupt the natural order of male government. Here's the first question. Says who? Says who? I need a chapter and verse, bud. I need a chapter and a verse. Just to be sure, this is not an argument either, or rather, it's an argument from silence, which is a logical fallacy. So he's appealing to something that nobody can prove. So this is a no-go. Second no-go. Second question. How does one know when God is interrupting the natural order of male government? How do you know? Because it happens? Well, then good. God's interrupting it every day. And who are you to say otherwise? You see, if God is allowing women to minister, according to John Calvin's view, he is interrupting his normal way of doing things. And only God can do it. So, God is interrupting his natural order, and you should sit down and shut up because God is sovereign. Sovereign doesn't mean what John Calvin thinks sovereign means either, just in case anybody's... Just in case I can make more enemies in my life, okay? I just want to throw that out there for you, okay? This is a challenge. This is very much a challenge. But nobody wants to take on these challenges. Why? Because it's probably going to get you kicked out of your tribe if you speak up. It's probably going to make people mad at you when you challenge uh, evangelical Christianity or status quo. So, uh, no one knows how this male government can be overridden. Uh, and basically, in John Calvin's view, only, it only happened in the Bible. And from now on, it can't change. Okay? Which is absurd and stupid, right? So now we have the term minister defined as a servant of God to live unto him and proclaim the gospel. We also see that women can and should do this. We know that women were prophetesses and now are a part of a royal priesthood. And as we just discovered, we have one who judged and even governed in a capacity over Israel. I want to end with this. And Ethan brought this up in his devotion this morning. And it just makes me happy Because Paul continues to reinforce the point. This is from Colossians chapter 3, 
verses 12 through 17. Um, I'm going to just do verses 16 and 17 on the screen. But I want you to see that Paul is talking to both men and women. And he's talking to the royal priesthood. And in this, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. With all wisdom, everybody, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What I hope you will walk away with today as we continue to build this discussion on women in ministry. Regardless of what it means to be an elder in a church, and we'll get there, regardless of what it means to be a deacon in a church, and we'll get there, regardless of what Paul means by I do not permit a woman to speak or women must remain silent or uh, that they must pray and prophesy with their heads covered, regardless of what those things mean, and we're getting there, okay? Are women called to minister? You're not answering loud enough. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. The debate seems to devolve into this chaotic argument of whether or not women should stand right here, okay? Whether they should stand right here behind this, whatever this is, right? So let me do something real quick. Sarah, come up here for a second. Stand behind that. I am breaking the law right now. Okay. No, anyway. Okay. So hold on, hold on, hold on. Here's why this is a problem. Did you know that this thing here called a stage or what often is referred to in traditional churches or in my mom's vernacular, a pulpit, right? Just like the vestibule out there. Sorry, mom. Anyway, the vestibule and the pulpit. Her Baptist just rings true all the time, right? Okay? And this, called a lectern, here's the real important thing that you need to understand. None of this crap existed when the Bible was written. And we argue and we go, don't stand there. Somehow that's, I don't even know what that is. That's just Sarah standing there, right? That's it, right? So we have these arguments, and we've got to break down these arguments, guys. We have, to, we have to end this kind of argument. Do we have to listen to what the text says? And do we have to submit to what it says, whether it's male or female? Yes, we have to. And we're going to talk it through. But everyone in this room is called to minister. You sit down. She, she may sit down. I'm, she's not my daughter. Okay. <laughs> sit down, woman. Anyway, okay. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. Okay. Okay, Dave McCarthy, please come up here for a second. I'm not joking. Get up here. Get up here. Yes, I know. Stand behind that thing. This is not supposed to happen. Okay, sit down. <laughs> All y'all around him, okay? <laughs> right, this is important. 
Guys, we, we do need to understand what the Bible actually says, but we need to be a people who understand that the world is dying. I'm not, I'm not appealing to fear here. Just hear me out. The world is dying. It is going to die without its Savior if we all don't start doing our job. Every day, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, Romans 12, 1. Every day, to the capacity that you have, in the sphere of influence that you have, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, all nations, because those people need to know what life is about. Amen? That's ministry. And that's what you're called to do. Amen?